You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Christ. Amen. Well, as you, if you were here last week, we've, my topic is, comes from this very passage, this very prayer that I read to us from the second Sunday of Advent, um, this prayer that God would cause his scriptures to go deep in our hearts. And I love that phrase, inwardly digest, that we would chew upon the word so that it becomes a part of our whole being, just the way we chew on food and we incorporate it into our body, our biological system. So too here the image is that we would chew on the word, uh, on scripture and the word of the gospel so that we would be able to do just what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't it funny how the sermon segues with the class. Um, This particular prayer quotes that same verbiage that's used in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that we would hold fast to the word. And here it's hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life. So there are many ways in which we can hold fast to the word. And I've given you, if you were here last week, you know that I'm striving to give you one way that perhaps you've never encountered. Yes, reading, yes, studying. And for me, as I was teaching Romans to the ladies on Monday mornings this past year, the um, verses that I had memorized as a child in summer camp came back to me. And not only did they come back to me, but they had so much more meaning for me after stewing in the word of Romans so much uh, more deeply than I ever had before. And certainly I'd read it again and again, but this past year was really wonderful for me. So today we're looking at standing in grace today. Next week we'll look at the mysterious love of God, and the last week of July we'll look at a costly love for others. And for each one of these classes, on the back of the handout, you'll notice the paper is a little heavier, and that's because I want to give you a chance to take this home. If you're like me, I'm going through all my papers right now in pre- preparation to move, and I ha- I'm a magpie, and I hang on to stuff like this because I like it, because I want to cut it out and put it on my mirror, cut out the memorized, the verses that I encourage you to memorize and stick them on your mirror or look at them. That will help you inwardly digest. And if you're a little squeamish about memorizing the whole of these long verses, I've highlighted some phrases that should stick in your craw, that should really jump out at you at more than others. Well, so... Last week, I spent too much time talking about sin, darn, but Paul spends a lot of time talking about sin in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, and the reason for that is you can't receive the solution if you don't think you have a problem, and his way of telling us the problem is to start further afield beyond us and then close the net closer and closer and tighter around us. If we're convinced that other people are sinful, then maybe we could believe that we also are enmeshed and admired in sin. So he talks about the problem of sin in chapters 1 and 2 in the beginning of chapter 3, and then Paul goes into the solution to our sin problem. Um, And now the righteousness of God is revealed through the death of Jesus Christ in particular, because there at Jesus' death, God is showing himself to be both just and merciful. He causes there to be a just penalty 
for the sin of the world through Jesus' death, through his own entering into the punishment for his beloved creation. And then he also allows himself to be merciful. Because Jesus is our substitute, then we experience the mercy that we don't deserve to get. So God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus Christ. That's that wonderful phrase from chapter 3, verse 26. Um, So I love that. So again, then Paul went on, and I gave very short shrift to chapter 4 last week. Paul goes on in chapter 4 to show how this righteousness of God, his righteousness in delivering ungodly sinners who um, deserve to die and yet delivers us out of sin and death, he also then imputes to us a righteousness that is not our own. And so his righteousness could also be said to be that righteousness which he gives to us. Though we don't deserve it, he calls us righteous and he makes us righteous. We're righteous even though we're unrighteous. We're righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. His own righteousness is swapped for our sin. And so we take on that identity and that role, uh, not that role, but that identity and the inheritance that is Christ's. And so Paul, in chapter 4, he's going to show us how faith in God's work in Jesus Christ is appropriated or received by us. Faith appropriates what God has done. And faith leaves no room for human pride. Faith involves the death of the old self, which loves to be noticed for all our perceived achievements. And Paul points out the example of Abraham, whom those who would like to justify themselves by works would point to and say, see, he obeyed God, he was circumcised, he did what God said, and therefore he was righteous. And Paul goes on to say, no, that's not right. He believed long before he obeyed in that act of obedience. Circumcision is merely the sign, the outward sign of what God has already done in his heart through faith. And so his righteousness, he quotes, Paul quotes Genesis 15 verse 6, specifically saying that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And so that word count or reckon is a verb of imputation. So chapter 4 is really talking about this theological reality that God imputes to us what we do not have on our own. He calls us righteous, and by the very calling of us righteous, he makes us righteous. It is his creative word. Just like in Genesis, he speaks all of creation into being. So too he redeems us through that same creative word, Lord Jesus Christ, and that word of not guilty, forgiven, and free. By speaking that over us, he speaks us into a new kind of existence. And so again, Abraham believed by faith and he had that righteousness. And that believing by faith, just for those of us who are embarked in this life of faith, and really the Christian life is a life of trusting in God, believing despite all appearances that God has forgiven us. And um, Abraham had to do the same thing. Abraham believed in hope in the face of the physical reality of his age and Sarah's barrenness, that God's word was true, that God promised that they would have a child and that somehow by his grace and through his miraculous activity, that would be the case. So faith is not la, 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 ignoring the reality of a situation. Faith is not despite reality trying to um, put our mind over our matter, but faith is rather looking with hope beyond the reality of our situation because the one we hope in, God himself, has proven to be trustworthy in the past and therefore trustworthy for the future. So I'll just take a breath right there, and as we dig into chapters 5 through 7 today, I want to note that there's a change 
Paul is going to go from arguing for justification by faith through grace to exulting in the benefits of justification. Um, if you notice, there will be a change in tone from chapters three and f- one, two, three, and four to chapter five. And I actually appreciate this. I don't want to say this in a I'm careful where to tread, but I really love some of the verses in chapter 5, and I really love 6, 7, 8 especially, and part of it is that tone changes. Paul has gone, he's been arguing and making this good case for um, God's salvation and the way he reveals his salvation in Jesus Christ, but then he's going to go on to talk about its implications. He goes from um, arguing to exalting. He goes from the first-person singular grammatically one does this this and this to then being the first person plural we we have this this is our benefit and so he's joining in in rejoicing with the congregation in the joy of what god has done and the implication of what god has done for us today and in the future because of what he's done in the past so again this changes the whole tone of these next few chapters So looking at chapter um, 5, if you have your Bible open, it would help you. I'm going to read the first few verses, um, and these are really some of my favorite verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Again, here Paul invites the Christian to join him in joyful thanksgiving for what the gospel provides, essentially for this new life given into God's service and for a certain and glorious hope of the life to come. And there is, as we see in this first part, an unbreakable connection between our present status and our fate at Judgment Day. This is what he's talking about with this peace with God in verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. In the past, from the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, from the moment we've believed in him, we have then been accepted through the work of another on our behalf um, who has done what we could never have done ourselves. We have ceased from our strivings, and we have this objective peace with God. This peace is an objective reality. God does not condemn us because of what Jesus has done. It's not just this subjective feeling of peace in my soul. It is well in my soul. It is that, but it's um, this peace with God, which is different than the peace of God. It's this, um, not necessarily just an inner sense of well-being, but that comes from this, but it's called, it's this outward situation where we are at peace with God. He is not against us because he is for us in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has died for us. And so God is now on our side. The one who could judge us, the only one who could judge us is now not judging us, but but, um, forgiving us and freeing us. And so we have this peace, and then we also find that this peace brings 
another reality, this reality of rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. That's this future reality. And in the present, we are standing in grace. And I love this idea of standing in grace. It's a great way to look at what the Christian life means. It's a great phrase for the Christian life. Standing is verbiage that suggests the one who stands before the judgment seat. When you're standing in a court of law, you have to stand if you're the accused You stand before the judgment seat for the passing of the verdict of the judge. You stand up to hear the verdict of the judge, guilty or not guilty. And we stand before the judgment seat of Christ at the last day. We will stand, and the words that we will hear will not be guilty, because then we'd fall. We'd crumble under that judgment. We would be justly condemned if the words were guilty. And yet the words that God will speak over us at that last day when we appear before his judgment seat will be not guilty and we will stand and we'll be raised. We'll be raised from the dead to enjoy all of life eternally with God the Father. And so there's this sense in which standing at the last day before the judgment seat of Christ instead of falling means we stand um, again all of our life here. We stand in grace and we stand as ones who are freed from that condemnation. And so there's also this joy, this rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. This describes our current position as we look forward to the future. This word for rejoicing could also be boasting. We boast in what will happen. We know by faith that God and his promises is sure and certain and that part of our salvation involves not only that forgiveness for sin and that freedom increasingly from the power of sin in this life, but also there's this promise that at the last day we'll be perfected. It's that word of that glorification. We'll be glorified. We will be like him. We'll be like Jesus in all of his glorious righteousness. We will be free from sin. When we die, sin dies with us. When we're buried in the tomb, Sin is buried once and for all, never to come back, never to rise. And when we rise, we rise as sinless ones, perfect, imperishable, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, with an imperishable body, with the glory of God. We have in our sin, as Paul says in chapter 3, fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, at the last day, we will be restored to that glory. And so we live on now in hope of what will happen. And this hope, this trust in God of what will happen, that future glory that will be restored, the restoration of the lost original glory, we can stand and withstand the trials and sufferings that come our way. And I love these verses 3 through 5, this chain of, um, of production that happens through endurance. As we rejoice, even in the midst of suffering, we're trusting that God is working somehow for our good, as Paul will say later on in chapter 8, that somehow, despite what we can see, God is doing something. And even in the midst of the suffering, he's doing the most. This is the theology of the cross. We believe that on the cross there, God is accomplishing the salvation of the world. That's the most, that's the biggest thing possible to accomplish. And so therefore, we trust in the midst of this life's suffering. Somehow, in that darkness, God is working miraculously to bring about something that is for our benefit and so that trust that rejoicing in the midst of suffering produces endurance endurance produces character and character produces this hope hope of the glory of god and the hope does not put us to shame because it helps us continue onward 
Well, I think of this word of hope and this hoping. What does it mean for us to hope in this life? And um, I have to think... um, I have to think specifically of some moments in my life, like very tangible moments, when I've had to look to the future to be able to get through whatever was going on in the present. Uh, I remember as a child, my mother is, Janet Layton, is really, she's like a mathematical genius. She, um, she, she, I could go on bragging about her, but she really is. Other people have affirmed it. And one of the things that my mother always did as a child, which was baffling to me because my brain does not work this way, is that she somehow would always know where we were in the timeline of the days of the year, and she would always be able to say, well, did you know, Deborah, that it was 57 days ago we went to your grandparents' house? And guess what? In 57 days, it will be your birthday. What? 57 days? How could you even, how did she even count that? That's not, if it was like 30 days, like a month, like I know a month from now we'll be moving. You know, that, I have a very fluid sense of time. She was so precise and so exact. And that would actually help us as children mark the time and look forward with hope to what had happened because what had just happened didn't seem very far away. Oh yeah, that was great. That was, that seemed like yesterday when we were at our grandparents' house and okay, we can, I can make it, I can make it to my birthday, um, to another exciting thing to look forward to, you know, children and humans. Um, But then the other, one other experience of this for me was as a bike rider, I'm excited, one of the, one of the, only things right now that I'm really excited about our move is that we'll be able to ride our bikes a lot where we're going. We'll be able to take, you know, the bike paths go in and out of the city everywhere and there are bike lanes everywhere. So we'll feel a little bit like Amherst, Massachusetts for me in that regard. And when I lived in Western Massachusetts, I would go on 30 mile bike rides and it's not a flat kind of countryside. It is very hilly. They call them mountains, but we know they're not mountains, but it's very hilly. And so up and down these roads to try to get home, you know, on the second leg of the journey, it was one thing to go out or to go the first part of the loop, but on the second part of the journey, I'd be so tired that you, you start to go and there's this huge hill facing you and none, not all the gear, the gear, all the gears in the world could not get me up the hill emotionally. So you're sitting there looking at that. Here it comes. Oh no, here comes the hill. How am I going to get up there? I just want to go home and take a nap or have some water or get something to eat. How am I going to get up the hill? And for me, I had to look ahead and just and pray. I prayed a lot. I think it's okay to pray while you exercise. I think it's actually really good pray at all times right but I'd be like Lord I, Lord I just want to get to that telephone post can't do it but I know that you've set it in front of me and I can trust that you're going to get me there Lord would you just get me to that telephone post and then of course that wouldn't be the post at the top of the hill there'd be another one up beyond that but I knew that waiting for me was the top of the hill and then it would be downhill and fun coasting and the wind in my air and um, joyful downhill riding from there, but that future helped me, that tangible future helped me get through the hard present. And that's the case for us today. Um, Each one of us experiences trials and sufferings. As Paul mentions, they're the sufferings that we would never choose for ourselves. We would never, we would look at other people and we say, well, I could probably go through that. Or maybe we say, well, I could never go through that. And yet somehow what he's placed in front of us, I think, is particularly hard for us. How does he know? 
How does he know what will get us to rely on him? But he knows. And that really is one of the goals, is that we would look to him in hope, knowing that we can't get up the hill without him, that we couldn't do it on our own. We'd just quit and be done. Um, and so by, by grace and through hoping in that future reality of the perfection that will be at the end of the world and trusting in God's goodness because of his mercy in the past to us, then we look to him in hope as we cycle through up that big, big hill by God's grace um, to that place of glory. So again, moving on from this first part of chapter 5, Paul then is going to look at um, at different other ideas. The rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 even will tease out the present implications of this past reality and the future reality, especially in the heart, soul, mind, and life of the individual believer in relationship with God. And so going on in um, chapter 5, verses um, 12 through 21, especially what we see is that um, Paul is going to look at this idea of one man's trespass and one man's obedience. He's going to look at how death reigned during this era before Christ and how now, through Jesus' death and resurrection, grace is going to reign. And he uses this idea of one man, Adam, as a type of what's to come, as sort of this um, inaugurator, the great-great-grandfather of everyone who ever existed, of all humanity. We all have inherited his sin as a kind of genetic mutation spiritually. We, each one of us, have lives tainted in every aspect by sin because of Adam's sin, and yet we're complicit in it as well. And yet in Jesus Christ, this new Adam, the second Adam, there is this inauguration of a new creation, the restoration of all, all who believe in Jesus Christ. Through, um, through him, now we reign, grace reigns, and we, because Christ reigns. Uh, F.F. Bruce says, a new creation has come to birth. The old Adam solidarity of sin and death has been broken up to be replaced by the new Christ solidarity of grace and life. Um, There are two ages, and we belong to the new age. Death reigned through Adam. We hear this in chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And again, he talks about this dominion, this reign. Remember that reign, I just picture sin sitting on a throne, a deadly, dark, dark throne, um, reigning over all of this world, reigning over all of humanity. And then a new age inaugurated where Christ is seated on the throne. And with him, because of him, grace reigns. Grace is the reality, the defining principle of this new age. And because of that, we also, um, through the free gift of righteousness, we reign in life through Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, we hear this idea of dominion and reigning and kingdoms again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, Paul here introduces the law and its role, but the focus is ultimately on these two different kingdoms. He will deal with the law later on. Again, before sin had reigned and had dominion, but now grace reigns and has dominion over us. We could say that there's a new sheriff in town. 
I love uh, another verse in particular from another of Paul's letters gets at this spiritual reality. In Colossians 1, verse 13, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son with the saints in light. We are card-carrying citizens uh, of this new kingdom, of this new country, of this new dominion. I often think of those who emigrate to our country looking for a better life, and it takes a lot to move from one country to another. It takes a lot, as I know and am learning right now, to move from one side of the country to another side of the country. But I can't even imagine crossing cultures and languages. I can't imagine crossing an ocean. And friends that I know of who have gone through this and then gone through the naturalization process to become citizens of the United States are some of the most patriotic Americans I know. Uh, They might be a different color than me. They might speak a different language than me, but they are the most patriotic people. We have to reimagine what it means to be American. They are thrilled by their new nationality. Even though we're not perfect, they are thrilled by their new identity and all of the freedoms and privileges that come with it. We are card-carrying citizens of heaven. We are card-carrying citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, Again, I think of those cards that I pull out of my wallet, and I never have all the cards that I need at the right time, whether it's the library card, or the Starbucks card, or the this card, or the that card. But this card is in prime position in the, the wallets of our hearts. It is the card that is the easiest to find. And when sin and death try to take dominion back over us, try to overwhelm us and dominate us um, with their power, we flash our card and we say, just like Martin Luther, I am baptized. I've been bought and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace reigns in and through me. I reign in life, so go away. So again, Paul will go on to enumerate some more of these freedoms in chapter 6. These freedoms in the kingdom of his beloved son. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the law. And in chapter 6, we hear about this freedom, freedom from sin's power. And he talks about this freedom that comes about through a death in verses 1 through 14. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, We were buried therefore with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, as F.F. Bruce says, death pays all debts, right? So the man who has died with Christ has had his slate wiped clean and is ready to begin the new life with Christ, freed from the entail of the past. Again, we've been crucified with Christ, in Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself over me, uh, gave himself for me. So again, now, in this present life, we are living under grace. We are living by faith. We are living in freedom. Sin no longer has dominion. As Paul says in chapter 6, verse 12, verse 14, sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. He'll go on again to talk about this death, death um, of the master 
if the, uh, or in death even of a slave, as he talks about, we were slaves to um, sin, and now we are slaves of righteousness. Um, when the slave is dead, his master can go on giving orders to the corpse until he's blue in the face, but the corpse will pay no attention. And this new kind of slavery, this slavery to righteousness, is something Paul describes as being obedient from the heart. We are obedient from the heart miraculously by his grace in this new, or this new era, this new age. This gets at what God promised to his people through Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Miraculously, by the grace of God, we spontaneously obey him. We end up doing what we ought to do without even thinking about it, without even that old conflict of um, do I or don't I. That old temptation is somehow miraculously gone. Sometimes, but not always. Um, Sometimes, and yet the reality is that the two ages overlap within us. And this is what Paul will get to in chapter 7. The overlap of the ages, the overlap of the old age of sin and death and the law and the new age of life and grace in Jesus Christ. Paul has said we are dead, dead to the law. It's interesting that he says that the law is part of the old age because in the new age, by God's grace, miraculously, the law is fulfilled. There's no sin. There's perfect obedience. And so the law um, doesn't even need to be a part of the new age. Again, the law is good, um, but Paul says through sin, it, um, it, but sin kills me through it. And this is what he goes on to say in chapter 7, that um, we die to the law because the law itself kills us. He talks about in chapter 7, and this is, um, dare I even go to chapter 7 in this wonderful church that has believed so beautifully in chapter 7 and the truth of what God is showing in chapter 7 throughout, throughout its history as a church. But here in chapter 7, Paul says in... Um, and I'm just going to read beginning on in verse 7, 7, 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin since the law has killed me? By no means, yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Um, The commandment promises life, but proves death. The commandment, the law, cannot produce in us that which it commands. Um, We hear this, um, I love, um, Luther says that the law increases the trespass. We always seek what is forbidden and we stretch out our hands desiring to obtain what is denied us. Another um, quote from Luther, quoting Ovid, the um, ancient writer, whatever follows me, I flee, but whatever flees me, I pursue. It sounds like a terrible tango. 
We have this with um, a two-year-old. Having a two-year-old makes this really apparent because I have to be careful about reiterating the law um, too much because then she will want to do it even more. Um, we, she knows that she, um, there's often someone after church who gives her a lollipop, which is lovely, but we know that it's 12.15. If she doesn't eat lunch, she's going to spiral downward. That lollipop is going to be a spiral of death and end in a two, one of those wonderful two-year-old tantrums with screaming and red-faced and so much rage in the tiniest body you've ever seen. You just can't even imagine it. And so we selfishly don't want to experience this, and we don't want her to experience this. And so we say, yes, you can have the lollipop, but only if you eat some normal food first. And so we, and we've used, we've used to let her hold the lollipop in the car on the way home, but that was not good because she's bit through the paper wrapping. She will get at and the fact that she's not allowed to have it, but it's sitting right there, it's just too much temptation. She's going to eat it, and then um, she's going to have eaten the paper as well as the candy. So we just have to hide it somehow, quickly. That's our number one goal as we're leaving church. Quick, hide the lollipop before you get in the car. Give her some Cheerios or something to eat on the way home so she forgets about it. Um, the law kills us. Um, the law only increases our desire for what is forbidden. Forbidden. And again, we forget this because we think if we just said it again, then people would get it through their heads with ourselves and with our roommates, our spouses, our children, our coworkers. We think it's okay to repeat the law and say it again. And it's fine. It is. Yeah, that's a great idea. Go ahead and say it again. Say, no, could you really just clean up the dishes? Or maybe if I just stick to my diet and remind myself what the diet is, then I'll actually do it. Or maybe I could increase my productivity at work if I just tell myself again, what's the plan? What's the plan for productivity to increase? How am I going to stay on my budget? I keep going back to the budget and reading it again and again, but that doesn't keep me on the budget. Um, I don't stop gossiping about people by saying, well, shh, 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 keep telling myself, stop, stop saying that, stop saying that, stop saying that, stop saying that. That's not going to help. That's not going to help um, heal the sin. That's not going to free us from the sin. The law only um, increases our desire for what is forbidden, and the repetition of the law itself, the reiteration of the law, doesn't actually solve the problem and free us from it. Some would say in this passage from chapter 7, oh, well, but this is about man before coming to faith. This is about the pre-Christian person who struggles with the law. And to that person, I would say, there are three kinds of people in the world. There's the carnal man, the sinful man of the old age who hates the law. And Paul talks about this in chapter 1. The second type of person is the self-righteous man. The self-righteous man denies his own carnality. Well, I'm not sinful. Yeah, the law is good. I love the law. And guess what? I can do the law. I'm not sinful. And the third kind of person is the Christian person. The Christian person has this, um, this, this pull, this conflict within him or her. The Christian loves the law. But the Christian constantly admits our own persistent carnality. Christians are the ones who are constantly telling on ourselves I have coined a phrase for this, saying, I wouldn't put it past myself. I'm sometimes surprised and outraged by the sin of other people. But then when I'm honest, I realize, well, sin's in the world, so of course it's going to happen. And then I realize, well, I'm not above it either. I'm sinful too. And so I've said, started to say when I watch the news, well, I wouldn't put it past them. Well, I'm not surprised by that. I'm shocked but not surprised, as Frank Limehouse says. But even more so, I say, I wouldn't put it past myself we are a battlefield in this life 
Um, Flesh and spirit wage incessant warfare, one against the other, within the citadel of Mansoul. Again, as F.F. Bruce says, there is this overlap of the two separate ages in in our self. There will be a sinful Deborah until I die, and that sinful Deborah will um, rub up against um, the new Deborah. Um, The two will be there, um, unfortunately, until I die, and yet there's that promise. Again, sin will die with me. So we can't just try to get better on our own, and yet there is a word that Paul has for us, and it's at the very end of chapter 7. Um, I delight in the law in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, God's salvation, his deliverance of us is yes in the past when we first come to faith and yes ultimately at the last day but it's also day by day all throughout this life as we come to our realization once again of our need for a savior and God's gracious gift in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you Lord for freeing us. Thank you Lord for speaking your love and your mercy over us, speaking that word of freedom. I forgive you. And we ask, Lord, that that word would echo in our ears and in our hearts throughout all of this earthly life, that we would position ourselves to hear it again and again, that you would reveal our need for it again and again, and that you would be mighty to save, as you surely are. And we ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.